Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Ida Yoshinaga, Sean Gines, and Jerry Canavan, editors of Uneven Futures, Strategies for Community Survival from Speculative Fiction, published last year by MIT Press. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Stentor. To start off, why don't you each tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? I guess um, since I'm listed first in the book, I will go. Um, So again, my name is Aida Yoshinaga. Uh, I was born in Honolulu, Oahu, Hawaii, and I grew up on Maui, which um, some of you may know uh, through various reasons. But when I was uh, coming of age as a child in the 70s, it was largely known for our third um, biggest export, Maui, Waui. (laughs) So I grew up in this very, I guess you could say, utopian moment um, about you know, I was born about six years after Hawaii achieved statehood and Japanese Americans among the Asian Americans in particular um, were really congratulating themselves for both participating um, in the drive towards Hawaii statehood um, and uh, basically becoming model, model minorities in the state. And in that environment, in a very small town, on a very small island, somehow I knew that was that things were not um, okay. And um, I think science fiction, as a young girl growing up in the island, for me, gave me alternative models um, reading, you know, things like comic books. So, you know, the the whole MCU that we see today on on streaming and um, in the theaters, et cetera. Like I experienced the comic book form of that um, when when I was in elementary and and, uh, through high school. Uh, So I I read that. Um, I read mostly new wave science fiction. So um, second wave feminist, you know, utopian science fiction, um, stuff like um, novels and short stories by Roger Zelazny, by Michael Moorcock, um, by some of the more critical um, golden age authors uh, who were uh, not necessarily heralding, you know, um, the romance of uh, white men in space on colonial missions and settling other um, planets, uh, but were more critical of it. I, I really enjoyed um, the work of Philip Jose Farmer, who was who was always sort of making fun um, of, of the genre and and things. So, you know, I, I grew up because of SF with a healthy skepticism about the history of my own people in Hawaii. And uh, then long story short, over a course of several decades, um, learned the real history, which is that Japanese Americans were part of a settler um, occupying labor force um, on native lands. And, you know, it's taken me many, many years uh, to come to terms with that and my own family history, but science fiction um, was a key, I guess you could say tool or wedge um, that made me understand the difference between utopia, dystopia, uh, colonialism, um, indigeneity, and and all kinds of very complex things in ways um, that were interesting and engaging 
engaging. Um, and so when Sean and Jerry came to me with this project, uh, because we all met at the Science Fiction Research Association meeting several years ago, um, I was so thrilled uh, to be included. So that's why I am here today. Sorry, Sharp. Oh, I guess I, I'm Sean. I'm uh, listed next. I forgot about that. Um, so I have a like a weird relationship to science fiction in that the only science fiction I liked growing up was Star Wars and um, didn't really like, you know, I saw Blade Runner when I was in high school and I thought it was like the dumbest movie I'd ever seen. And, you know, so, I, you know, my experience of science fiction was like weird nerd shit that I didn't really have an interest in. But I was also weirdly interested in like D&D and, you know, even worsely written uh, fantasy novels. Uh, I grew up reading like Forgotten Realms, you know, dark elf fantasy novels. Um, and it wasn't until actually when I was um, in um, uh, college reading uh, in anthropology and linguistics that I happened to see the movie John Carter, which is an, uh, a, a bomb box office bomb Disney adaptation of uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' Princess of Mars from 1912. And for some reason that movie stuck with me and I was like, wow, science fiction is kind of a lot like anthropology in the sense of like doing what anthropology does, but making it up. Um, and of course there's various connections there, you know, with Ursula Le Guin having um, had uh, Alfred Kroeber as a father who was an important anthropologist, an important and controversial one. Um, and so I then started getting interested in science fiction, digital anthropology, and uh, just dove headlong into that. Um, at the same time that I was becoming like, you know, a little baby Marxist and feminist and uh, all, all kinds of other things. And, and that really resonated um, because I was able to find those things in science fiction world building and world making. Um, and so that's kind of what drove me into grad school then is this desire to say something um, about science fiction. I'm not sure if I've said anything useful about science fiction yet, but um, yeah, I mean, in terms of where this project came from, I think this was just um, me trying to do a fun project with some colleagues and originally had been uh, created as um, the idea was to do a kind of um, keywords in science fiction studies project um, with NYU because they have that keyword series because I, I had done a chapter in keywords for comic studies and I thought that was a really cool idea and something science fiction studies would benefit from but I think science fiction studies is maybe too small of a field right now for NYU to really be interested in that book um, and so we then came with this idea to kind of focus on well why don't we turn it toward this current moment of you know what what Ida calls you know science fiction 3.0 in the book and or science fiction studies 3.0 sorry and you know make this book about that and have people just tell their stories about why some text means something to them and what we can do with that that knowledge and, and what that text gives us uh, i'm jerry canavan uh, i'm a, a professor in the english department of marquette university uh, who mostly works on science fiction um my, my story is not that different from Sean's. I grew up reading a lot of white men in space novels uh, as a kid, as well as Forgotten Realms novels, Star Wars novels, Star Trek, uh, you know, tie-in novels, uh, a lot of kind of garbage, <laughs> but uh, stuff that has a, a, a real soft spot in my heart. I was uh, very interested in um, writing science fiction. I got an MFA and then uh, wound up going to get a PhD uh, and had intended to smuggle in science fiction into my dissertation and wound up writing the whole thing about science fiction instead, uh, almost by mistake. I've worked uh, as an editor uh, quite a bit, uh, as well as uh, author of a book on Octavia E. Butler, who for me was one of the kind of big hinge turning moments of seeing that this genre could do other sorts of things. Uh, and in, you know, in addition to everything Sean said, uh, for me, one of the major things was that I was just coming off a project called the Cambridge History of Science Fiction, uh, which was an edited collection that tried to tell the whole story of science fiction, uh, which always begins with Mary Shelley and then uh, about 30 white men um, before anybody else shows up. And so, you know, thinking about, well, how, how would you um, tell a different sort of story about what science fiction is and, and where would it go today? Um, 
And around that same time, I saw Ida's presentation at the Science Fiction Research Association called Science Fiction Studies 3.0, which was about the question of like, well, what, what happens when Disney becomes really good at uh, marketing diversity to us, um, but it's still Disney, right? Like, how do we think about uh, some of the questions that science fiction studies has become preoccupied by uh, outside a framework of um, representation? And so uh, this book kind of started in some sense with kind of wrestling with that question uh, and asking people how to, you know, where do the, where does their history of science fiction start in a way, or where does where does their science fiction canon kind of begin? Okay, so the title of the book, uh, "Uneven Futures," is a reference to a quote by William Gibson, who said that the future is here, but it's unevenly distributed. So, how does your book address that issue raised in in Gibson's quote? Well, I think we're all coming to science fiction. Well, some of us with longer runways and other other uh, others at a time where. Um, the field has been diversifying, or the science fiction studies field, I should say, has been diversifying for maybe 15, 20 years, possibly longer, um, so that, you know, it's not only one demographic uh, that's enjoying the genre and relating to it and projecting their their fears and their the desires and their visions of society upon it. You know, we are entering a time um, where science fiction studies is connecting with things like post-colonial studies and uh, center your field, geography and um, social justice movement. So with that very much in mind, um, you know, our prompt for this, this project, once it, it kind of shaped away from keywords and more towards um, something um, like an editorial edited collection was for everybody to choose one science fiction text with the term science fiction and text um, defined very broadly. So some people in this collection chose texts that many would consider like fantasy um, or folklore. Um, and definitely we have things like superheroes and SF horror, et cetera. But take that text um, that in some way speaks to community survival in this particular moment in history where, um, you know, the ravages of decades of neoliberalism are racking not just our environment, uh, but our, our labor markets, um, our relationships, our homes, and our communities. Um, we have been in constant crisis um, in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. And, you know, at that time, at the, um, simultaneously, you have um, an explosion exponentially in science fiction production, right? So how is a genre that used to be niche and used to be, you know, basically not to reduce it, but, a, you know, very specific demographic of science and tech type uh, fanboys, <laughs> um, mostly white, generally regarded as or presenting as male and cis, um, what can this genre that now is way mainstream and way commercial uh, present for other readers, other viewers, other participants in the genre all over the world? And we were very careful when we send out the call um, to curate it and to to kind of code it so that um, diversity was built in. We have um, multiple queer and trans um, authors. We have people in diverse genres, um, not just fiction, but also film and television and video games. We have creatives um, who will design some of the media or author it as, as fiction writers. Um, we also have a number of indigenous writers as well as black writers um latinx uh scholars and educators you know and and they focus on everything from plays to short stories um to in some cases not even what we would consider a traditional text um definitely we have short fiction and we have um plays and television and film but we also have people who say hey that protest that um, indigenous people of Hawaii, for example, had um, at the site of the 30-mile telescope on Hawaii Island um, because of both colonialism over Hawaiian land and terrible land use management um, in the name of science, um, that protest and the blockade that indigenous people had there for months um, and years where they set up a, a, a Native Hawaiian university to teach people about sustainable ecology and culture and respecting um, the volcano and so on and so forth. That is science fiction. Um, so, you know, we have some, some texts that are, for example, 
um, archives of community people submitting their own stories, their fan fiction, et cetera. So we, we try to really make it diverse in as many ways as possible. We also try to be geographically diverse and had some success in that, even though I think we all feel, you know, the 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 gaps, but, you know, Asian, um, African um, futurism, um, Latinx, um, you know, different kinds of European, um, as well as, of course, North American um, stories are all recognized in this collection. Yeah, I think I think for me, this is Sean speaking. I think for me, one of the one of my frustrations with kind of going into a PhD in literary studies is this kind of performance among scholars of like my literature is activism or sorry, my scholarship is activism. You know, I'm going to write this this critical work on some Shakespeare plays and that's somehow going to change the world. Right. Um, and I think that really frustrates me. And so, you know, and to some extent, our book is doing that kind of performativity um, as well. But I think one of the things that I kind of wanted us to pull together and respond to is this sense of, you know, you've got people in, in, in our field, you know, talking about the Anthropocene, they're talking about um, race, they're talking about um, gender, queerness, all in kind of different conversations most of the time. And so how can we recognize that these are all part of this constituent crisis of being alive today and all of these structures that have come to a head and then have a book that tries to represent, you know, the diversity Ida is talking about, but also the diversity of the, the issues that we're dealing with, the responses that we need to have for the present. And not so much in writing about these, these works of of um, you know science fiction, speculative fiction, um, are we going to save the world? But is there something that we can actually bring a value in thinking through speculative fiction, and that speculative fiction gives us whether it's the trashiest thing you can imagine, you know, whether it's a Marvel superhero movie um, that's you know doing propaganda on the low key, or you know some super artistic uh, Latinx futurist play, right? You know, we've got that. You know, we 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 try to recognize that people are going to get, um, you know, transformative meaning out of a variety of texts and just kind of um, give people the opportunity to think that through rather than, you know, just say, hey, we've we've changed the world right here by by offering our literary criticism. Yeah, I, I think our introduction kind of gets at some of this, right? We just we talk a little bit about the way the, the future, especially in the 21st century, seems like a site of emergency and it seems like a site of contestation, right? And so almost all of the pieces in the book in some way are kind of working through uh, different dimensions of that kind of uh, struggle over the future and the differential impacts of, of some of the emergencies we're, we're experiencing uh, in the present on, on different sorts of populations. I, I was thinking about um, the, the Mauna Kea essay too, the 30 mile telescope essay, which, you know, naturally almost became the, the concluding essay of the book. Right. Um, I think we all kind of like landed on that as, as saying something different because it's not about a science fiction film or text. It's, it's about something completely different, but about the way these kinds of conflicting, uh, futurities kind of crash into one another. Right. And, and this interesting site of, of trying to work out what that looks like and, uh, maybe how that looks different than, um, some of the space fantasies uh, we were talking about at the beginning uh, that I might have read uh, when I was a kid in the 90s, right, that um, we have to think through some of these things differently and that maybe starting uh, with Heinlein and Asimov every time isn't going to isn't going to get us there. OK, well, that's great because you've kind of touched on a whole bunch of the different things that I was planning to ask you about so we can kind of branch off of these comments in a bunch of different uh, directions. Uh, so. To start off with, could you say a little more about how you went about selecting the authors and the topics they were writing about for this book? And I should mention there's, I think, 40 chapters in here, you know, very short chapters. So hopefully I'm not scaring anyone away and saying it's a 40 chapter book, but, you know, short as there's a lot of them. And as you were both, you're all saying, you know, covering a, a huge range of different kinds of works, different time periods, different places they're being written in. And the, the authors, likewise, you know, a huge breadth of people from different sorts of uh, backgrounds and with different relationships to the field. So, you know, how did you go about, you know, finding these people, bringing them together, turning them into a, a coherent kind of uh, set of, of chapters in this book? 
So we we chose a, a format for the book that uh, you know the kind of think piece style. You know, I think we told people they would have about two thousand words uh, suitable for what might be published in the Los Angeles Review of Books or the Atlantic or uh, a place like that, right? Um, we used our networks, right? Um, and you know, to the point that I was making earlier, right? Our networks kind of extend so far, and then they start to peter out, right? So Uneven Futures 2, right, can be much more international perhaps than Uneven Futures 1 was able to be. Um, but we had a kind of general sense of what the parameters were, right? The different kinds of um, uh, identity categories we wanted to make sure were included, different kinds of crises or conversations that we wanted to make sure we were included. Uh, and then we reached out to people, told them the basic idea, which was that they would pick a text that they... Um, either loved or were interested in, right? Something that would be, you know, that would be useful, not ex as a canon exactly, but as a as a kind of centerpiece text for some other conception of what science fiction can do uh, or speculative fiction kind of broadly conceived can do. Uh, and then just kind of tell us why. Um, we didn't have to go that deep into our reserves because a lot of people were really intrigued by the project. So I think we, we wound up with a, a pretty high uh, acceptance rate uh, and then kind of waited for things to roll in and tried to figure out how to organize it in a way that would be digestible, <laughs> right? And ultimately uh, landed on this rather opaque uh, table of context scheme around uh, some keywords that we also changed constantly. Um, emergence, rupture, interlude, and revolution uh, that were kind of uh, ways to kind of think through what different sorts of pieces in the uh, in the collection we're doing uh, and where their kind of intervention in the field might be. I think we were viewing those categories and we did kind of, you know, edit and revise them um, as different steps, um, not necessarily linear, not necessarily exclusive, but different steps in a politi politicization process, right, of, of communities uh, who are struggling to make sense um, of their lack of power in this era. So, you know, emergence being a phase where, well, things are wrong and we don't have much power, but let's at least try to build empathy and understand each other and, and understand each other, you know, across difference, right? So we found there's a group, uh, there's a cluster of science fiction texts that achieve that, whether it's young adult books or, you know, TV shows um, with puppets <laughs> or, you know, whatever, right? Um, and then also then building on, well, after empathy, then what? Right. Um, and at a certain point, people start to collectively organize. So we went from that, you know, more interpersonal level to the larger, um, actually, social action levels. Um, but in ways that, you know, we try to retain the diversity. Um, I'm very proud of some of the pieces that were brought not by academics, uh, but were proposed and written by authors. For example, Sami Ahmad Khan, who also does have a PhD, but he's an Indian um, South Asian novelist um, focused on the competent authority uh, by Siobhan Chaudhary. Um, and so for me as an editor who's largely been raised in the West and my only uh, really substantial foreign uh, or non-U.S. understanding is that of Japan. You know, it was very exciting to learn about South Asian science fiction, especially in the last couple of years, as I've said in my my um, Science Fiction Studies 3.0 essay. That's been a, a whole site of tremendous um, speculative fiction production and also theorizing, you know. So, so Sami uh, Khan participated. Um, we also um, had... Um, uh, Joan Slonkiewski, I'm sorry, I I don't I never know how to pronounce her name, um, who's a very respected, um, you know, scientific, um, I guess, feminist writer, um, submit a work and probably um, our pride, um, if not Jerry's uh, contacts, Kim Stanley Robinson is very much known um, in, I guess, what we would consider today to be cli-fi, but I think even before that, Robinson, um, known for things like the, the Mars Trilogy, um, was doing environmentally oriented science fiction work. So we have we have some really great authors, um, and we also have like people who work in interactive media talk about, you know, games from their point of view and what makes certain kinds of video games or digital games, you know, more, more um, thought provoking than others. So, so we get to the nitty gritty of very artistic and technical um, aspects of the science fiction form. Um, and so that's been really fun for me because I'm interested in creative things. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think bottom line is we wanted this to be not kind of like a stodgy academic edited collection that only, you know, members of SFRA, Science Fiction Research Association would read, but something that would have crossover appeal. You know, we wanted the essays to be short and snappy, um, to be kind of fun, excerptable, teachable to undergrads who might, you know, be assigned one of these texts. Um, and to that end, we also didn't want the table of contents to, to be all the same people that you see in all of the edited collections in science fiction studies. Um, and so, you know, we, there's a couple of those people who are always going to show up um, just because, you know, at this point it's rude not to invite them sometimes. Um, but we wanted to make sure that we were, you know, not only doing authors, creatives and academics, but also early career folks, folks who by virtue of, you know, the universities they're coming from might not get these opportunities um, to be in edited collections. And, and thankfully, MIT Press, you know, they treated this like a trade book. They didn't treat it as an academic book. It's it's a on fully trade list. You know, it, you can find it on Penguin Random House website. So um, I think the book has achieved what we wanted in terms of being a book that people can hopefully take something from and move beyond the academy. Yeah, that's... I'm glad you brought that up because this is definitely a book that on the one hand, as an academic, I find this, you know, really valuable. There's a lot of really good and interesting things in there, but it's also something that I could see like giving to some of my friends who are really like engaged in fandom and, uh, you know, watch these TV shows and read these books and so forth, but aren't like academics uh, and, you know, don't know anything about the scholarship about science fiction, but they would still be able to to read it and get something really good out of it and see new perspectives. You know, if they're reading a chapter about uh, a work that they know and love and, you know, it could give them perspective on that or uh, add things to their TBR pile, which I know mine has grown from, uh, some of the stuff I've read, some of these chapters, like, oh, that actually sounds really interesting. I haven't read that book yet or seen that show or whatever. Um, so then another thing I wanted to ask about that uh, a couple of you touched on in those last answers is the role of community, because that's one of the themes that, you know, it's in your subtitle and it, it comes up in a lot of the discussions in individual chapters is the importance of community in envisioning the future. So could you say a little bit about uh, the importance of community in this uh, project? Um, I don't want to be too academic, but, you know, we we really try to focus on reception, but not in, in a kind of, you know, here's a survey, tell us what you think way. Um, we wanted the responses uh, because our form to be very personal, even among the scholars, right? Why do you love this work? Why do you think communities um, might be inspired by this work or provoked by this work? One of our texts, um, the author was dealing with a um, the film The Wandering Earth, which came out um, from China, I think a couple of years ago. Now Wandering Earth 2 is out. Um, of course, based by Xixin, um, Liu Xixin's um novels, right? Chinese science fiction novels. And and I love that our author um seems to have a love-hate relationship uh, related to Chinese propaganda and you know um you know what science fiction does um to promote that, you know. So um even the most um passionate of our SF fans um as well as the most critical um, we're always trying to think about what does this do to people in the community, right? What does this do to represent China? Because um, so many people were expecting um, a lot from that movie, right? Um, and beyond just shallow ideas of rep what representation is, um, how does science fiction get people to think about their society in meaningful and provocative and complex ways? Um, so for me, that's... You know that really came through. Um, we have a, a piece by two Brazil, uh, sorry, um, uh, Brazilian uh, science fiction experts about Rece, Recife Frio. Um, you know, Brazilian uh, dystopian science fiction television. And what I love about this, um, you know, the the entries we got are many of the more, I guess we consider obscure uh, television and, and film texts are now accessible through places like Netflix and Amazon. So you can like, you know, learn about another part of the world um, through their allegorical um, stories or through their critical dystopian stories. Yeah, I think, I think for me, the, 
the sense of community, you know, strategies for community survival is, um, you know, all of the issues that we're facing today are not individual in issues for individuals to solve. Um, and so the question then becomes, you know, what good is it to tell someone to, I don't know, take shorter showers, turn the water off, you know, when you're brushing your teeth, like that's not the solution um, to the climate crisis. So uh, hopefully the texts that people chose to then write about are offering, uh, you know, strategies that aren't just pick yourself up, you know, be a stronger person, um, fight the bad guys harder, whatever, but that are actually giving solutions or thinking through possibilities that in include everybody's survival uh, rather than just, you know, the individual's um, survival. So that's that's kind of how I took community uh, in our call for for action mm -hmm. through, through taxes that we're in this together, you know, whether some of us like it or not. So the, the stories have to reflect that, or the texts need to reflect that as a response. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, I, I think a lot of our, our, our readers kind of went through, a, a writers rather, went through a kind of journey uh, of that sort. I can walk you through mine. I, I had taught a, a class on uh, comic books during the COVID period when we were all online. It was a kind of oops, all Watchmen course that was focused on Watchmen. And then it's kind of weird sequels that DC tries to put out as ever awesome, the TV show. Um, Watchmen is a superhero story. It's a story about kind of larger than life figures trying to control the world in different ways. And every path that any of them seems to come up with leads to like universal human extinction. Uh, and there's the little moment in the in the in the story that seems to point to a different kind of future. And that was what I wanted to focus on. So mine kind of takes advantage of the openness of the text of write really about like one page of one issue of the original Watchmen comic from 1985 to 1986, uh, where you see a different kind of vision of what community could mean uh, before the superheroes come in and wipe everybody out again. Um, and so that, 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 Passage meant a lot to me as I've read the book over the years and taught it. Um, it's something that always falls out of every adaptation. Um, nobody ever pays attention to this page that I like. Uh, and so this was a kind of opportunity for me to kind of come in and, and highlight this one small part of it that I thought had a different uh, kind of line of flight than the rest of the text and the way it's been received. And um, different people, you know, we, we really let people choose their scope in different ways. So some texts are really immense and some texts are really, really small. Uh, but everybody is, I think, trying to do that in some way, highlight something that um, they think should be highlighted. I think that was the beauty of our approach wasn't to say, hey, you know, we want somebody to do a Kim Stanley Robinson novel. We want someone to do an Ursula Le Guin novel. It was just, let's see what they say. Let, you know, let's let's invite people that we want to hear the opinions of and let's just see what random stuff they give us. Um, and I think that's the best part is that, you know, they gave us so many random things like the collection is just if you taught a course based on this book, it would just be whiplash, you know, all over the place, <laughs> the kinds of texts that we have. And I I love that. But in a good way, you should teach a yeah, course based on the book. You should. We, and we hope someone does. Um, and our, our publicist at MIT would like to know if you do that. So please let us know. Um, but I think that's the beauty of it is that, you know, also community is like, there's always going to be that weird guy at the, at the community, you know, organizing meeting who wants to keep reminding you that aliens might abduct us that person still matters and has to be included in our like attempt to fix the world. Right. And, you know, we, we have a few of those people in the collection and it's brilliant. It's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and Sean, you mentioned Ursula Le Guin a couple of times. And so I did want to ask actually, because I noticed that she actually shows up a couple of times. There's two different chapters um, about her, which made me happy because she's one of my favorite authors. So I was wondering if we maybe use her as an example of, you know, a little more of the kind of, of you know, specifics that uh, the book might say about a particular, uh, a particular author or, or work. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Le Guin was, Le Guin's the only person that shows up multiple times, although Kim Stanley Robinson is an author in the book, and then he does a chapter on one of his books um, in, in, the, um, in the book as well. Um, 
And Kim Stanley Robinson wrote a chapter on the dispossessed, which, you know, I think is kind of the obvious chapter to write about Le Guin uh, for a book like this, because that's a book about, you know, what, what are the possibilities for an anarchist revolution and for anarchist, you know, world making uh, in the midst of capitalism. Uh, it's a beautiful novel and it does that really well. Um, and then my my chapter was on um, left hand, no, uh, not left hand darkness, the second Earthsea novel. Um, uh, the one tombs of atuan right. yes i can't even remember tombs of atuan sorry I, I i did this in the midst of an entire reread and, and essay series on all of the Gwyn's novels so at this point i can't remember where my ideas begin and end um <laughs> and i think that was like a weird novel to choose and like our peer reviewers were like well that's a kind of a weird choice like for the novel but i think the the kind of point that i drew out of the uh the revelations that the character um who becomes tahanu has at the end of the novel um, and, and they're very individualist, but the point is a lot larger. And I didn't choose Tahanu, which I think might've been the more obvious choice. But then, you know, we leave out, you know, you can choose any Le Guin novel and it's a perfect, you know, even her weird early Hainish novels, but, you know, Always Coming Home is I think a novel that I'm surprised no one pitched to us. Um, but I think there were a few times where, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Ida and Jerry were folks had pitched books by authors that had already been represented in the collection. And we kind of said, eh, let's steer away from having too many of the same people represented. But, you know, at that point, Kim Stanley Robinson had already done Le Guin. And so we were like, ah, oh, well, we've got to have this in there. So, you know, um, so I think that ended up working out really well. Yeah, Le Guin is one of the great writers of that new wave moment where science fiction kind of uh, turns itself inside out a little bit and starts to try to look at its own assumptions. And uh, Delaney's another one. Butler kind of comes in at the end of that period. Uh, probably like the biggest omission from a science fiction standpoint is like Philip K. Dick, I don't think shows up anywhere. Nobody picked a, a Dick novel. Um, but that the, that's that's a hinge moment for the genre, right? And so it seems weirdly fitting that Le Guin would, wouldn't sneak in twice in that way. What I um, enjoyed the most... Um about Sean's essay is he takes himself back to, I think, childhood and, you know, that feeling um, that that tombs of Atuan reminds you of when you were growing up. And I love the intimacy of that, right? Reading a book or maybe streaming something and relating in that kind of very intimate way, like this, this book or this movie reminds me of this. Um, and that's why I feel like over time, the value of this collection is it's, it's community members reflecting on community as they read science fiction. Um, for me, perhaps the strongest text in that regard is by uh, Toshi, um, is by Ayana Jameson. Um, and she looks at Toshi Reagan and Bernice Johnson Reagan's adaptation of Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower um, into a, a musical play form. And um, Ayana Jameson basically describes, you know, that specific moment where the play um, was, was shown in L.A. just as COVID was starting and how Black community members were so um moved and transformed by Octavia Butler's vision. You know, even if it was interpreted through play form from novel form. Um, but this idea of someone going into a text or receiving a text and being so um, you know, struck by it, being forced to to think um and to feel and to reflect. Like I really got that out of Sean's Le Guin piece. And it reminded me of why I enjoyed Le Guin also as as a child. But you know, to see in essay after essay, like we have a Black Lives Matter um piece that actually wasn't in the original collection, but was volunteered by one of the readers at the press, um, actually uh, assigned to review it, um, who felt that that reader felt, well, you don't have Black Lives Matter, even though we had you know, a fair amount of Afrofuturist and African futurist texts there. Um, so, you know, I think there's something about speculative fiction, speculative arts, and community where people just, they go in, in into that, that space of wonder. Um, I don't want to say immersion because, you know, media corporations have really taken that and gone somewhere gross with it, um, but maybe wonder, critical reflection, um, communal 
uh, historical identification, right? Um, so I, I feel um, extremely, um, I, I marvel at, at what we received, even if, it, you know, it wasn't all stuff we expected. Like I wouldn't have expected. Um, we approached, um, a, I think, a Caribbean scholar and I was thinking she's going to, um, you know, do um, Caribbean literature. And she, I think she was one of our our are scholar writers, but she ended up doing Flatland, you know, which is a very old work of science fiction. And I mean, she's also a scientist, so that may be why, because there's kind of, you know, satire of of um of science there. But you never know what what kind of genealogy or what type of community people will identify with. And she was identifying as a scientist. I thought, oh, she'll bring something Caribbean. But, you know, she had this genealogy of scientific storytelling. So that was really lovely. Yeah, we weren't seeking to have a kind of universal one-size-fits-all interpretation of any particular text or any particular genre. So, so a lot of the essays do have that kind of like, this is me in this moment, and and how I how I felt about it, right, or how I remember feeling about it. Um, uh, there's an essay on the X Men uh, by David Higgins, who's a friend of mine, so I can I can expose that I, he and I argued about this piece a little bit because um, he was like, I love the utopian glimmer in this X Men story, and I'm like, but David, you know how Marvel works. In two years, they're going to reverse it all. They'll all be back in the mansion. This will be exposed as some kind of sinister plot by an evil person. I was right, by the way. Um, that all has all <laughs> since happened. Um, but he was, you know, he was like, but it means something to me in this form, in this moment. Right. And, and it matters to me. Um, uh, and so we, you know, in the end, the piece didn't speculate on any kind of future franchise history. It was just about this kind of one set of X-Men comics that are really good that, um, I would really recommend everybody read. It's a great, it's a great essay on a, on a, on a great comic. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's lots of kind of rough edges in the book in that way of things that like, you know, I read Captain America a little differently maybe than uh, the author does in the text, but. I think that the essay is really good in terms of, of articulating what, what that vision is. Yeah. So just to throw out a few of my own observations here, uh, number one, I thought it was really cool that you had a, a chapter that was about the, like the musical version of Parable of the Sower. I got to see it, I think it was back in April. It was here in Pittsburgh and it's, it's so powerful. I think, you know, anybody that has a chance to go see that definitely, definitely, uh, should um and then just to validate sean's choice to write about tunes of atuan uh when i was a kid back in the late 80s i got the original uh earthsea trilogy and i read wizards of earthsea and i was like okay this is uh, a fun fantasy adventure and then i read tombs of atuan and i was like okay whoa uh you know the Gwyn is now one of my favorite authors so that that was the one that that just really blew me away um so i think that definitely deserves uh deserves that kind of attention so then uh, I also wanted to ask about, uh, you've mentioned a couple times your Science Fiction Studies 3.0 essay. And so I think it's a, a good kind of way to start to wrap up our conversation here is to talk about where you and then also uh, your other two co-editors, where you see Science Fiction Studies as a field moving in the future and kind of how this book connects to those directions that you see? Um, I guess one of the things I mentioned in, in that essay is uh, that because we're at such a peak time of cultural production, not just a science fiction text, right? Like through streaming and through, um, through television and through film, but um, you know, all genres, uh, we're being stuffed um, with stories. Um, and that's by design. That's part of the neoliberal moment, right? Consume more, consume more. And by the way, you're helpless and you know, don't have any control over your lives. But look, an explosion, right? Um, or mutants or a school for magic or whatever. So I, I guess I try to emphasize with my students that that maybe you can also produce, maybe you can also tell stories. Because I also that partly as partly trained as a folklorist, I also feel like our stories are being supplanted um, and they're being watered down. And this is a very conservative take on narrative. Um, and they're being hybridized. And hybridization is not always a bad thing, but you know, when the purpose is to sell you more um DC stuff or Disney stuff, then you know, probably there's not going to be long-term um a lot of real content and value, even though superficially it's like, whoa, we have more diversity and, you know, et cetera. So um, I try to get them to think about, and I guess this is what I would say to an audience, a, a listening audience too, 
um, what does it mean to consume speculative fiction versus produce? And what is the role in all this cultural production? Um, you know, when we have we have our own stories, you know, I always I always tell my my the learners in my classroom, you know, communities always have stories first. Without these stories, there wouldn't be so-called content, right? And they are quite stunned and shocked. <laughs> Um, because I, I work at a tech school, so they're always being told content, 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 you know? Um, and it's strange how people forget that. Uh, I think we're at a cultural moment where we have to fight for retaining our stories and, and treasuring our stories and curating our stories um, and not think about things like streaming numbers or box office. I mean, I recognize right now we're in a moment where you know, the WGA West is really fighting um, as a labor union uh, for, for writers and creators' rights. Uh, but at the same time, is it only IP? Is, is this work only, you know, um, something that can be fought over at a negotiating table? Like stories are so much more than that. And um, I guess basically, you know, let's not drink the Kool-Aid without community. There, there, are, there are no narratives. Um, and that's the foundation, I guess, for me. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really well put. Um, we were trying to think through a lot of a lot of those kinds of things about about what comes next after uh, science fiction's you know done wringing its hands a little bit about some of its bad fantasies. Um, how do we think about how these things are made? You know, what does it mean uh, for video games to be uh, made through these kinds of crunch time? Uh, you know, 50 hours, 60 hour more weeks. Right. Um, I loved across the spider verse, but uh, thinking about them trying to make two of those movies in five years and the amount of labor and, and work that must've gone into it and um, how hard those animators are being driven. Right. Um, and thinking about the Academy itself. I mean uh, the identification problem in the university, many of our writers have um, relationships with academia that are fraught. Uh, many have left academia or thinking about leaving it as Sean, uh, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but you've kind of pivoted to a different kind of career. Um, thinking about how those conditions of production go, I mean, that's all it's all kind of part of where we were coming from and trying to think about it. Uh, again, I mean, the idea that that communities have to survive Im implies a certain amount of uh, imperilment, right? And so um, I, I think that position of precarity was was on our minds in, in every way when we were trying to trying to think through the book. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. And and also, you know, to kind of take, you know, Ida's got her vision of what science fiction studies 3.0 is, and now people get to run with it, right? Because it's out there. Um, but I think the other thing, you know, if we're talking purely within like an academic genealogy, of what's happening is that we're seeing for the first time in the last 10, 15 years, and certainly much more in the last, you know, five to 10 years, everyone else is interested in what we're doing. Everyone else is interested in these texts now, too. Uh, whether it's because it puts more butts in seats in classrooms to, to teach these things, which Jerry has thoughts about for sure, about science fiction studies classes propping up English departments, um, or if it's because like there are more folks doing scholarship on Blackness and queerness and Latinidad than there have been ever, and where is a lot of the interesting stuff happening? It's happening in speculative fiction. It's happening in Afrofuturism, Latinx futurism, right? And so, you know, you, you know, I, I just was looking at um, University of Florida Press catalog uh, for the upcoming season fall. There's a book on like Afrofuturism and dance, and I was like, ooh, let me take a look at that. There's nothing about speculative fiction in the book. It's not at all related to any text I've ever read. Nothing is about science fiction, but that concept lives in other disciplines, and people are now using the language that science fiction studies has built over the past, you know, 40, 50 years to talk about everything, right? Um, and so I think that's another place where science fiction studies 3.0 is this kind of grappling with, well, now everyone is doing what we're doing. What are we? All right. Well, I think our listeners should have a, a good idea of what they're in for if they pick this book up. So that uh, brings us to our traditional final question here on the MBN, which is, what are you working on next? I can go first. Uh, I'm this summer. Uh, I'm working very hard to complete some projects that have been delayed uh, due to uh, COVID and life events. Uh, one of them is a, a book about teaching science fiction that I'm working on uh, for the MLA. 
um, which probably uh, hits on some of those things Sean was just alluding to, right? That um, science fiction is a very popular topic, but there's a very small number of um, tenured profession uh, professors uh, devoted to it. Um, very few job lines have science fiction in the name, right? Uh, so, you know, next to the figure of the fan scholar, we have the fan scholar adjunct, right, who teaches these classes at six different universities, right, a semester, uh, or or eventually has to leave the field, right? So just thinking about that, I think, is, is, is part of it. Uh, but the book is also just a kind of study in uh, what do you do uh, with science fiction in different kinds of classes, uh, different kinds of student populations. So um, I'm really excited about it. Um, it it's... Uh, it's taken a minute to get it done, but I'm I'm eager to do it. Uh, and then in my own research, I'm working on a book on uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's novel Aurora, which is my weird, perverse pick as his favorite um, uh, novel of mine, uh, the one I think everybody should read first, uh, and as well as, you know, a constant parade of projects that I don't devote enough attention to. So it's a curse to the academic. Um, I just signed a, this is Sean, I just signed a contract for a, um, a short book with the University of Texas Press's, um, let me see if I can get the name right for the series. I think it's called 21st Century Film Essentials. Um, a, a recent book in it was by, um, oh, what's his name? Um, it's called Black, it's a book on Black Panther, the movie. Um, scholar's name escapes me. Ter Terrence so, McSweeney. Scott Bukitman. Um, oh, the other one. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, the other yeah. book. Yeah, no, this is just like a, you know, 50,000 words on a single film. Anyways, my book is on the Hunger Games, uh, the, the film from 2012, and sort of the phenomenon of that um, from a very science fiction studies perspective rather than a film studies perspective. So hopefully I'll be writing that this year um, and finishing it by June 1st of next year. I guess I've been um, working on... Um a relatively short book about Disney as a fantasy factory, um, you know, that takes folklores and basically uh, monetizes it, um, but also as a, as a transmedia force um, such that people live and breed the brand from uh, basically childhood through, um, as far as I can tell, middle age, it hasn't yet tapped the elderly market, but definitely there's a market for middle-aged women. Um, and try to say things about, about labor in the digital era, um, immaterial labor, creativity, um, in, in new ways related to gender and race. So I am, um, um, Jerry and another scholar that he works with are, are doing a land on a line on franchise cultures out of University of Minnesota Press. So that's that's their first project. And then um I have a, a another book on um Okinawan writer and producer contributions to um Japanese uh post-war science fiction. So a lot of what we consider Japanese science fiction was shaped at least in part by different indigenous groups um in what's considered Japan proper um in a moment of relative tolerance and multicultural relative in Japan um, after, you know, um, Japan had lost the war um, and had suffered through the nuclear um, bombings, etc. So I'm, I'm looking at that moment, uh, but also how indigenous Okinawans um, as a group of global diasporic uh, people have used science fiction, um, you know, in um, to tell their own. I, I think those are the two. I'm, I'm doing a lot of other stuff, but those are the two that are are, are largely my own personal stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, those all sound like really interesting projects. I'll definitely be on the lookout for all of those uh, and maybe have some of you back on the show to talk about them when they come out. So thank you all three for, for being here. Thanks again. Thanks. Thank you, Stinter, for the great questions. Yeah, this has been a conversation with Ida Yoshinaga, Sean Gines, and Jerry Canavan, editors of Uneven Futures, Strategies for Community Survival from Speculative Fiction, published last year by MIT Press.